What is the craziest and riskiest thing that you have ever done? The craziest, riskiest thing that you have ever done. Was it like a kid like going up on the monkey bars, like the highest monkey bar and like sort of like hanging upside down? Was it maybe uh, trying out for that sports team or auditioning for the school play? Was it snowboarding or skiing that double black at Stowe? Or, uh, I don't know, maybe doing something as radical as jumping out of a plane, like skydiving. Uh, Was it asking a girl out on a date? Or girls, was it actually saying yes to go on that date? Um, Maybe studying abroad. Maybe the decision to, to leave home, right, and to come here to UVM. For some of you, that was just down the road, but for others, it was on the other side of the world. Like... No doubt, for Peter, stepping out of a boat in the midst of a terrible storm was the craziest, the riskiest, the most daring thing he had ever done. Now, I want you to imagine this scene uh, with me for a moment. In the middle of a violent and churning sea is a boat. And if there is a mast on this boat, it's broken in two. The wind is howling and the waves are like crashing over the bow of the ship. And the men aboard are faint and seasick and scared. Some are praying, uh, but some are crying. And all of them think that they're going to die. Then one of the men, right, our guy, right, Simon Peter, staggers to his feet. And he lifts one leg over the side of the ship and then another. And his friends who are on the boat see what Peter is doing, and they freak out, and they start crying, like, Peter, no, don't do it. And then if you're, like, making this a movie, right, the camera is going to sort of, like, zoom in on the feet, right? You're going to see one foot touch the water, and then another. But instead of sinking, Peter stands. You know how some movies will like sort of freeze a frame for, and then sort of like rewind, like, and sort of like go back to like the beginning and sort of like sort of work your way and show you like how you got to that point? Well, I kind of want to do the same thing. Like here we have like Peter stepping over the boat. We'll freeze this frame and let's sort of like rewind and go back to the beginning and see like how did we get here? Like how did we even get to this moment? Look at verse 22 with me, Okay. If you've got the sheet of paper in front of you, the passage before you. Right, after feeding 5,000 men, which is the passage that comes right before, and probably feeding twice as many women and children with five loaves and, and two measly fish, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he puts them on a boat, and he tells them, look, I want you to go on to the other side of the sea. I'm going to catch up with you later. See, Jesus is going to stick around, and he's going to see the crowds off, And then he's going to meet up with the disciples on the other side. At least that's what they think when he says, I will meet up with you later, right? They don't know (laughs) what's coming, all right? Well, a few hours later, the disciples are in the middle of the sea. It's the middle of the night, and they are in the middle of a horrific storm, right? The wind is uh, against the boat, right? The boat is itself taking a beating, and the disciples are doing everything in their power to keep the boat afloat. But even the most seaworthy of them, 
fishermen like Simon, fishermen like James and John, uh, and maybe even his, Simon's brother Andrew, in the back of their minds, they're all thinking, is tonight the night? Like, is tonight the night that we die? If they are afraid, in verse 24, right, these disciples are freaking out. In verses 25 and 26. It's not because they're in the middle of a lake and they see a lake monster. It's not because they see Champ, right? They see Jesus. They see Jesus walking on the water towards them. And the Bible says that they are terrified and crying out in fear. This is very strong language for the Bible. You know, when I was uh, 11 or 12, my parents took me to Disney World. And the newest and the hottest ride in Disney World at the time was... Uh, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror uh, at MGM Studios. John's like nodding his head, yes. Have you all been to Disney World? Anybody know this ride? Megan does. <laughs> well, I'm not going to blow it for you. <laughs> You're going to have to see it for yourself, but maybe this kind of gives it away a little bit. The first part's pretty slow, right, and kind of boring. Right? You're kind of like taking this slow, sort of meandering uphill ride through a not a very haunted, like a not a very scary haunted house. Right? But then at the very end of the ride, these doors open up, and you are like looking over Orlando, and you have this split-second thought, like, oh my gosh, we're up pretty high. And then whoosh, right? Like the you and everybody else around you is like falling 200 feet to the ground. I don't know if you know what a 12-year-old John Minan sounds like <laughs> on the Tower of Terror, but I think it might be the most terrifying part of it, at least for like the other people who are on the ride with me. Like, I still don't know if I screamed, like, who was louder, like me or my sisters, right? Like, the sound of a bunch of prepubescent boys riding the Tower of Terror is what this boat full of men sound like when they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. It is high, and it's kind of ugly, right? What happens next is nothing short of amazing. Okay, immediately Jesus says to them, right, take heart, be encouraged, stop screaming, right? It's me. But the text says, right, literally says, I am. He says, don't be afraid. See, Jesus is walking on water, and he identifies himself in that very moment as God, as Yahweh. And then Peter does something, right, totally unexpected. He shouts out at him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I don't, like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> right? And now here you are, Right? Now we're back at the scene where we started. The feet are going over the edge, right? They're touching the water. Y'all, what is Peter thinking? You know, why on earth would Peter want to leave the relative safety of the boat and expose himself to more risk and more danger by stepping into the midst of a turbulent sea? You know, the question is not so much how does Peter do this, Right, the question that you, you and I really ought to be asking is why does Peter do this? You know, why step out of that ship? 
why even, why would you want to? I've asked myself this question a whole lot this week. Why? You know, is Peter crazy? Is Peter stupid? Is Peter arrogant? Like, is he trying to, like, upstage all the disciples and, like, win brownie points with Jesus? Is Peter being brave? Tonight, here's where I've landed. I think that in the midst of a storm, Peter realizes that there's no place that he would rather be than next to Jesus. In the midst of a storm, there's no other place that Peter would rather be than next to Jesus. He would rather be with Jesus outside the ship than inside the ship without him. And so Peter steps out in faith in order to be near this one that we know is Jesus. He believes that Jesus is worth following. Leaving the boat behind is what many would call a leap of faith. And it is that. It is a leap of faith. But here's the thing. Peter's leap of faith is not a blind leap of faith. Peter steps out in faith with his eyes and his ears wide open. But he is not ignorant. He is not blind. Peter has spent enough time with Jesus to know that if Jesus calls him to do something, Jesus will give him the grace needed to carry out what has been called or what has been asked of him. And you see this logic in verses 28 and 29. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he walks towards Jesus. Peter believes in Jesus. He believes it's better to be near to Jesus in spite of the risks than it is to be further from him and relatively safe. At the very least, Peter thinks that Jesus is worth following. Peter has come to these conclusions, but not because somebody said so. Peter believes these things because he's actually spent time with Jesus. He's gotten to know the man who calls himself God. He's not just listening to people talk about Jesus, He's actually listening to Jesus. And what's more, he's watching him, and he's observing him, and he's testing him, and he's testing his character. He's a student, right? Like he's a disciple of Jesus, which is to say that he's been studying Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus has proven himself faithful. He's proven his worth. He's proven that he is worth following. Which is why when this crisis happens, right, when it hits the fan, Peter is both willing and able to take this leap of faith. It's a leap of faith, but friends, it's not a blind one. Jesus is worth following, and following Jesus, though it may be risky, and though it may be dangerous, and though it may seem strange at times, it's not illogical, right? It's not blind. It makes sense. And it makes sense because Jesus, by his words and his actions, have proven himself worthwhile again and again and again. And friends, they will continue. He will continue to do that all semester long. But if Jesus is worth following, he's worth worshiping as well. 
Let's look at verses 30 to 33 together. Okay. But when he, that is Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't know if you know this, but this is the first time, it's the first recorded instance in the Bible where the disciples actually worshipped Jesus. Right, Peter and the disciples have been following Jesus for some time, but this is the first time recorded in the Bible where they're not just following him, but they're worshiping him as well. It sort of raises the question, like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does it mean to worship something? Or like, what does it mean to worship someone? Some of you, uh, Ben might know this, since he is from England, right? But the word worship actually comes from the old English word, uh, worship. Okay, we worship uh, something that we think is worthy uh, of our praise, worthy right, of our devotion. To worship something or someone is to say with your whole life, right, like with your words as well as your actions, that this matters most to me. And whatever this is, right, it can vary. Like, maybe what matters most to you is money, or pleasure, or power. Maybe this is comfort, or control, or having really good looks. Maybe it's fame. Maybe this thing that matters most to you is having your parents' approval, right, or having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, Maybe it's getting good grades or having the most likes on Facebook or Instagram, right? It could be anything. Whatever it is, right, what you worship is what motivates you. It's what drives you. It's what even defines you, right? The language of worship is if I have this, I have everything. But if I lose this, right, I have nothing and I am nothing. Of what would you say that's true? Because here's the thing, right? We are all, all of us here, right? We're all worshipers. The question is not if you worship something or someone, right? The question is who or what are you worshiping? In one of the most famous commencement speeches that has ever been given right, by the late David Foster Wallace, he says, and I quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what we worship. And that's the end of his quote. You see, human beings were made to worship God. We have, as it were, this sort of built-in, like hardwired, like God-sized hole in our heart. And if we are not putting, like filling that with God, 
Like we're trying to cram other things in there, things that are lesser, things that are smaller, right? And they will not fit. And because they will not fit that, that hole, right, we will not be satisfied. The irony, as Wallace goes on to remark in his commencement speech, is that if you worship money and things, then you will never have enough and you will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and will ever need more power over others to numb uh, you of your own fear. And if you worship your intellect, maybe being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Jesus and God is the only one that you can worship, right, without being devoured, without starving yourself. Friends, everybody worships something or someone. So, like, what about you? What are you worshiping? What gives your life meaning, significance, and worth? You know, what is at the center of your life? Here's the thing. On this particular night, Peter starts to worship Jesus. For the first time in his life, Peter worships Jesus. You could say like the center of his life shifts tonight. But why? You know, like what changed for him? Here's what it wasn't. It wasn't seeing Jesus walk on water. Like that's not what pushed him over the edge. It's not what turned Peter the follower into Peter the worshiper. It's not. It wasn't a miracle. Peter and the disciples have seen plenty of this stuff before. They saw the miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. Right? He saw it happen. Hey, cast your nets over to the side. All of a sudden, like, the greatest catch of his life. Peter sees that, and he doesn't worship Jesus. He follows him, but he doesn't worship him. On more than one occasion, right, Peter and the disciples see Jesus casting out demons and healing people of various diseases, right? They follow him, but they're not worshiping him. Not yet. They they just saw, like the day before, Jesus feed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And they're following him, but they're not worshiping him, right? Not yet. But something happens here, right, that changes Peter's life forever. What? You know, what was it? Here's my best guess. For the first time in his life, for the first time in his life, right, Peter doesn't just see Jesus as some miracle worker or like some wise sage. For the first time in his life, Peter sees Jesus as he truly is. Someone who is there to save him. It is the first time that Peter sees Jesus as someone who is there to save him. Look at verses 30 to 31 with me. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, 
Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter sees the wind and the waves, and he freaks out. And friends, this, makes, this totally makes sense. You know, stepping out in faith and following Jesus, it's not always easy, right? And it's not always safe. There are places in this world where this decision to step out in faith and to follow Jesus will get you killed. Right? There are places in this world where the decision to step out and follow Jesus will get you persecuted. Here in the United States, following Jesus might not get you killed, but you will likely face rejection and ridicule. Right? It has happened plenty of times to me where I've been at a, like at a house party and people come up like, oh, hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then they kind of do this. <laughs> Looking for somebody else that they can talk to because they don't want to talk to me. Right? And to be honest with you, it hurts. Like, that sting doesn't go away. And if you have ever, like, identified yourself as a Christian, maybe you have felt that sting too. Right? Peter steps out of the boat because he sees Jesus But because his faith isn't blind, because it's not blind, he can't help but see the chaos that is surrounding him as well. He can't help but see the wind and the waves that are against him. He can't help but see that there is opposition and inevitable pain and suffering. And taking it all in, his heart sinks a little bit. His faith falters. He begins to doubt. And then he sinks like a Peter, which is to say he starts sinking like a stone. But this is what Peter sees next. And this is what I want you to see as well. Peter sees Jesus' hand. And the hands that can work miracles are the hands that are reaching down into the depths and grabbing hold of Peter's own hand. And he feels those hands lifting him up out of the depths. And then what Peter sees is not Jesus' hands, but Jesus' face. And he's up close to Jesus now, right? And the wind and the waves are still there. But because Jesus is close to him, right, they don't loom as large as they once did. And he hears Jesus' voice. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? In other words, I'm right here, Peter. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm not letting you go. Jesus is worth following. But Jesus is worth worshiping too. And when you see Jesus as Peter did that night, not just as rabbi, and not just as Mr. Miracle Man, Right, but as Lord and Savior, this will change you. And it will redirect your worship away from those things that seek to starve you, and it will point you to the very one who has come to save you. In a moment, we're going to get a chance to worship Jesus, to sing a song to Him again. Right, but before we do, right, let's pray. Jesus, I'm thankful um, 
for your word, and I'm thankful uh, for our time together. I thank you for who you are. You have proven your worth so many times and have proven that you are faithful even when we are not. And I pray that by your Spirit, you would help us now, even now, right, to see you as you truly are, as the Son of God who was sent to save. And in seeing you as you truly are, would our hearts be changed. I pray we would give you thanks, and I pray we would give you the praise. And I ask these things in your precious and saving name. Amen.